This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. times when ADHD is impossible to miss, and there are other times when it is too easy to overlook. In children whose symptoms mimic stereotypical ones, such as hyperactivity or impulsivity, the diagnosis is often made early, while those with less obvious signs, such as emotional dysregulation or sleeplessness, may go undiagnosed into adulthood. This episode discusses the most common ADHD signs The behavior and presentation of ADHD are often stereotyped, despite the fact that it manifests in disparate and dichotomous ways. Consequently, not-so-obvious ADHD symptoms may go ignored or misdiagnosed in broad daylight. In such a situation, the subtle but lifelong symptoms of ADHD suddenly become unmanageable when triggered by unique and stress-inducing circumstances. Most adults don't get the help they need until then, The most common ADHD symptoms are being revealed today by Dr. Dara Abraham. Valeria interviews Dr. Dara Abraham. She is a Philadelphia-based psychiatrist on a mission to transform lives impacted by adult ADHD. With personal experience and 15 years of expertise under her belt, she creates tailored evaluations and treatments that help individuals thrive. As a passionate advocate for ADHD awareness, Dr. Dara enlightens healthcare professionals and the general public through her thought-provoking pieces in renowned publications like Attitude Magazine and Clinical Psychiatry News and informative guest appearances on mental health and wellness podcasts. She firmly believes that adult ADHD can be conquered at any age and is dedicated to spreading her empowering message to the world. Meet Dr. Dara at drdarapsychiatry.com. Here's the interview with Dr. Dara Abraham. In your own words, who is Dara Abraham? So, I am a psychiatrist. I am also a mother, a wife. And, you know, I am many things to many people, but to my patients and for my work, I am a adult psychiatrist that specializes in adult and adolescent ADHD, which is attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Yes, I have a curious question. What inspired you to become a psychiatrist? Oh, wow. So that that goes way back. I always have been interested in the human mind and the brain and how why people behave and act the way they do and the connections and always could love just to meet someone and get to know them and become fast friends, regardless of their Mm. age, younger, older. But I, so I always knew I wanted to go in some type of psychology field. And then of course I grew up with a family of physicians, a father who's a physician, uncle, cousins, and the idea of going to just be able to do therapy and not prescribe meds was unheard of. And so this was definitely a battle that I had in terms of not knowing if I really, I didn't want to pursue medicine. I knew I always, if anything, would want to go into psychiatry. But after, you know, real lots of trials and tribulations and figuring out, you know, what to do, I ended up going to medical school and now I can do both, which is provide psychotherapy and prescribe meds. So I get to do it all. Right. Um, That's wonderful. Reaching that goal in a way, um, coming from the inner world, like knowing what we want and going for it. It sounds wonderful to me. Yeah. Does it feel like a purpose to you? 
what do you do or a mission? I do now. I will say that when I was going through medical school, because there was no, I wanted to, you know, I, I learned to want to be, I learned to become a physician, but I really was always a healer, a therapist, a psychiatrist. But those years of medical school and internship were hard, you know, hard to really align with everything and, and not feel like an imposter since, you know, I can't, I don't even know how I got through my surgical rotation in medical school or even like gross anatomy during medical school. But now I feel like it's definitely a purpose, like to mm-hmm. the point where I, I just want to, oh, I always want to be working. I have to, I have to stop myself from mm-hmm. working and spend time with my family, yeah. kids, friends, mm-hmm. because I just have so much to say and do and so many people to help and mm-hmm. so many people to educate. Right. How beautiful. So it doesn't feel like work in a way, right? Yes. No, only the documentation. Only uh-huh, when I yes. have to do the notes. Everything <laughs> else now seems like so much fun. Yes. Uh, I love hearing that. Um, another open question I have for you is about mental health. How do you define mental health these days? What is to be mentally healthy from your perspective? So mentally healthy is really having a grasp of your past, meaning your past historically in terms of your upbringing, socially, where you were born, the biological component of, you know, your her, your parents, your, your ancestors, and then really bringing it into the present day and being able to appreciate all aspects of your upbringing and you know, how, why you are the way you are and behave and have certain triggers and to really reduce the blind spots that we all have in terms of our present day emotions, um, behaviors and interactions with our loved ones and, you know, others. Yeah, that is fascinating to even contemplate the idea that the body holds so much information and it's kind of doing things in a way automatically, which it is the case but becoming aware of those patterns, it's so important. It's so important. Right? That's why I made that comment off record about self-knowledge, just diving, going deeper into what what or who we are. It's so important. That's one of my main interests in life is to know more about the body-mind complex and how it works. But of course, one of my main practices is a little bit outside of that in a way, it's spiritual practices. So really addressing the body-mind complexities, but more going beyond them in a way. But that's another podcast yeah, conversation. Hi, <laughs> right there. But speaking of spirituality, do you have any spiritual understandings or spiritual practices, anything that you would call spiritual? So, I mean, I, I definitely have been trying to implement some form of mindfulness, um, I wouldn't even call it meditation at this point, but some sort of mindfulness journaling. For me, writing has been really helpful. And just knowing that I need to figure out a bigger purpose of why I'm here and what I'm here for that's larger than myself. So in that way, I think I'm just in the beginning of that exploration. I've unfortunately been so focused on getting to where I am in terms of my career or my family. And I'm finally ready to kind of take a breather and just figure out what else there is and what else I want to do in order, you know, not to be so cliche, but to really feel like I've, you know, made a difference or impacted, Mm. you know, the world in some way, shape or form that's bigger than myself. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That that's definitely a spiritual, let's say, if not a practice, I would say it is almost like a longing, some sort of desire yeah. that's heart-oriented. Yeah, and I'm only in the beginning stage, so I'm really kind of like craving it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds wonderful to me as well. Another question that might relate to that is the idea of happiness. What do you feel true happiness is or where does it come from? Oh, that's such a great question. And I'm sure over the years I've read so many articles, books on that. But, you know, what I've realized and also just working with, 
my patients and my acquaintances and friends and family members that it really, really comes from within. And it really comes from a place of of really accepting where you are, but still pushing yourself to grow if that and to evolve and to maybe achieve more, but but initially accepting where you are and and acceptance comes mm-hmm. with many things in terms of you know, a struggle to get through medical school, a struggle to get through high school, just accepting that and, and being really mindful of, you know, the, the journey and and figuring out ways to learn on the journey, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just focused on that end goal. Mm, Yes, that's a beautful insight that I I absolutely agree. I call it curiosity. I kind Mm -hmm. of try not to go as deep, perhaps not to ambitious in the sense of growing, evolving. I, I kind of try to make it simple. Okay. It's just being curious. Nah, right. Always yeah. yeah, waking up like, oh, what is this today? Well, it's a new day, but what does it bring? And exploring from a almost like a childlike lens. That has been my practice too. Yeah. And to be honest, I think one thing that I think really brings happiness for most people, which I've been struggling with, is relationships. It's really hard yeah. as one adult to maintain those friendships from grade school, middle school, high yeah. school. And for me personally, I am can we all can get very um egocentric and you know almost a, like not not to use the word narcissistic, but almost that really narrow focus of everything my life is too busy. I to attend to my children, family and also work. How am I going to have time to cultivate and continue these friendships or other relationships? And so I think that in the end of, you know, when I talk to some of my patients that are, you know, past the age of huh. 65, yeah. you know, really, that's what they look back on. That's what brings them happiness, that connection. Ah, yes. Connection. That comes up a lot when I talk to people here. I'm going to ask my ending questions. Connection. That's a big one. And I absolutely agree. Relationships. They are not easy, but they are so enriching. Um, Yes. And they take work. They really take work. (laughs) For sure. A lot of work. Yes. One more question for you within the open questions. When you mentioned happiness related to accepting where we are and then using your words, growing, evolving, and then I said being curious, would you say that all this is connected to the work of healing and it is the goal of healing? Yes, I do. And I think that I think of healing, you know, in in terms of that, what that means to someone and what that the definition of healing is. But definitely, you know, there's so many forms of even like a micro trauma type of response yeah. to mm-hmm. something that, you know, may not be traumatic for someone else, but like healing in terms of just, you know, that self-actualization and really, you know, coming to terms and figuring out what it is that makes you feel fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Answered that big question. Well, <laughs> it's a huge one. Yeah. And do you think that changes the question of what makes us peaceful, fulfilled, happy? Is that something that's dynamic? Oh my or? God, beyond. Yeah. Like for for yeah. me, it changes on a daily, hourly basis. Right. But most yes. people, yes. I think every stage of the, their life, and whether it's decade or yearly, it's just, you know, it's different things in terms of where they are. And I think looking back at, you know, even my 20s and 30s, I'm, God, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know my age. I, you know, the, the real... Every, the, what I desire and what I truly brings me contentness and happiness is so different. Yes. And that's the beauty about life, isn't it, Dara? That it's uh, always moving and there's so much to be explored. So why miss it? Well, some exactly. The opportunities, right? To be happy in a different way, to feel fulfilled in a different way. So with anything that comes our way, in a sense, being present to what is present. That's a, a beautiful concept. Not easy to execute, <laughs> to really live by, but worth exploring from my perspective. Totally. Uh, so let's dive into the topic of ADHD awareness. So I guess the, the very first question that I should ask is, what is ADHD? Okay, so that <laughs> is 
attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And there are technically there are three different kinds of subtypes right now, but most people have a little bit of both. And so basically the combined type. But if we break it down, it's inattentive. So it's ADHD, inattentive type, or ADHD, impulsive, hyperactive, impulsive type, or ADHD combined type, which is both symptoms. And so really, it's just breaking down the symptoms of inattention, which are difficulties with the obvious of focus, sustained attention, but also includes forgetfulness, motivation, um, consistency. And then we have the hyperactive, which is an obvious one when it comes to maybe the, you know, the cliche of a little boy who won't sit still and physical hyperactivity. But that also includes the internal hyperactivity, which we see in little boys that grow up to become men and little girls, as well as adult females. And that's that internal hyperactivity, the noisy brain, we call it, the brain that doesn't shut off, as well as impulsivity. And so impulsivity, I'll just reference the adult picture, really can be so many things. It can be impulsive emotions. So impulsively, your emotions just kind of become dysregulated quickly. It can be impulsive language, kind of hitting below the belt during a fight with your partner. I'm not taking that pause or, or impulsive overeating, binging, shopping, things like that. And so really, really ADHD really is not the best name for this disorder. It's since it's not really attention, it's not a deficit of attention. It's really a regulation disorder. And so it's the inconsistent ability to regulate attention as well as activity, as well as emotions. And so many people with ADHD actually have something that's still, and I forgot to mention this one, still an intensive symptom, that hyper-focus. So people think of it as this positive, great quality, but it also can lead to some detriment. But it is still considered an inattentive symptom when you hyper-focus on things that you enjoy or you get in that hyper-focus mode. And then there's that inattention and then there's that hyperactivity. But there's many folks out there with ADHD who actually have hypoactivity, which just means the opposite, which they have no motivation. They're kind of lethargic. They can't really get into much. And then it's self-explanatory, the, the uh, emotions, that's the hyper-emotion. Someone's very reactive. And then we also have people who really just have difficulty with emoting that comes down to brain chemistry. Right. Wow. Now I have too many questions here. Let me begin <laughs> with another one. Why did you become interested in treating um, ADHD? So I kind of was searching for answers from about myself. Yeah. And I finally accepted that there may be this underlying what ADHD is a neuro um, developmental disorder in myself. Yeah. Psychiatrist I had been seeing years ago had mentioned it and I kind of brushed it off thinking like they didn't know me. Uh-huh. During um, residency and after residency is when this really started to click. But during residency, there was a lot of patients in my outpatient year, your last year of residency, your third year, who really did not fit in any diagnosis. And like, I couldn't, the, they were refractory, meaning the antidepressants didn't really work for their depression. There was no other type of mood disorder, like bipolar there. They really weren't personality flawed. And finally, I realized that there was this inherent ability or sense of something, you know, not, not feeling good enough. And the more I went into it, I realized there was this whole symptomology of this the same of this idea of not not reaching up not reaching someone's potential imposter syndrome feeling that any type of attention or focus is so much mental energy and so i while really diagnosing a lot of my outpatient third year as a their therapist as well as their prescriber i started to see my own provider and really start to figure out you know get a formal diagnosis and get the treatment that I needed, which was medication and therapy. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. It's, it's a meaningful, from my perspective, I have to say that you come from your experience. So it's in a way easier to help others facing yes. these challenges. 
That's really wonderful to know, too. I did read that on your website, and you're very transparent about that as well. So a question that came to me that I thought about was yesterday reading all this. Is ADHD under the neurodiversity classification? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's different than other develop. It's not, it's not necessarily just a developmental disorder. Right. It's like autism spectrum or other yeah. pervasive developmental disorders, but it is considered a neurodiversity. It relates more to brain differences in some disabilities, right, Dara? It's not really a pathology, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it's really, it's not psychopathology. It's not like depression or anxiety because that's why, and that's why it's so hard for people to believe sometimes that they have it when they're told by a doctor or a psychologist, because everyone probably has a few symptoms of ADHD. If we really look, there's Mm, like, I think it's Russell Barkley, one of the big pioneers in the field has like 91 symptoms in one of his books. And really on the in the DSM-5 are supposed to be our Bible that I, you know, don't usually, I, I wouldn't really credit it like that, but there's a, at least maybe only 20 or so in terms of a formal diagnosis for the inattentive and hyperactive impulsive. So what happens is, is that the neurodevelopmental part of it is that's why it's considered that type of disorder. The brain functions in the front part of the brain that help one with goal-oriented behavior and also sustained attention, focus, all that good stuff, they develop at a different pace and therefore never, usually at least a lot of the symptoms or a lot of the development never reaches the full potential. Right. Yeah, that's what I thought. I talked to somebody recently, an autistic mm-hmm. psychologist, and it's uh, it was kind of, we had such so much fun because... Um, he was really like all over the place and not me too. <laughs> and then both of us. And then we laughed so much. It was just the most fun interview so that I awesome. can't remember. We were like, he's talking about blueberry muffins all the time. He loves that. I so, love that. Yeah, super informative, highly intelligent, but also, let's say, open in the moment. Whatever it is that I would ask, he would expand in a fun way and then bring it back to the subject. I mean, it was just the most amazing thing. And that's what kind of came to me, uh, to my awareness, that this is about brain differences, because we're all different, aren't we? In nature itself, it's so different, diverse. So, and we are nature. Yes. I can't help it, but thank you. And that, but at the same time, that's what makes it so hard for, Mm. you know, a family member to believe that their partner has ADHD as a a disorder, since since if if that partner also has some symptoms, Ah, there it's yeah. easy to kind of brush off as but mm. what do you mean yes. I do that too or what do you mean she pays she pays attention when she wants to she just doesn't pay attention to me <laughs> yes you know what I mean so it's yeah and that's where we really have to look at how when it becomes just symptoms and when it becomes a disorder yes right in a sense of being let's see become harmful right to one's yes. health and well-being like overall like at least affecting at least two areas of their life like affecting school as well as their work or school and their home life or socially they're not really connecting with uh, others yes yeah that's signs to look for another question i have you said that that makes adhd difficult to be diagnosed Talk to me a little bit more about that. What makes it so hard for diagnosis? Oh, God, so much, so much. So unfortunately, only in the past 15 years or so has it been really identified in adults. And so before that, it was really considered, or I'm dating, I would say more. I mean, yeah, I guess 15 years. Since the 80s, it was really, that's when it was just starting to really become a thing. Before the 80s, yes, it was out, you know, there were, there was always ADHD, but, you know, it wasn't really identified. And even in the early 80s, mid 80s, you really had to have real obvious Mm, um, detrimental uh, symptoms affecting your school and grades and academics to receive a diagnosis. And really back then it was just the hyperactive impulsive. So that's number one number. So the, the diagnosis itself has never been, the name of it has never been great and it's gotten better, but still not great. The actual criteria that they use that is used to diagnose is still pretty poor. It 
it really doesn't include many things. It, it leaves out the emotional part, the emotional dysregulation. It leaves out sleep. 80% of adults with ADHD actually have some form of sleep disorder, whether it's trouble for falling asleep, early insomnia, staying asleep, which is um, middle insomnia, or even, you know, having trouble with, with um, having their deepest part of sleep right before they wake up. So trouble waking as well as restless legs. There's so many things. So really it's the criteria and not, and not um, identifying all the different symptoms. And then there's so many symptoms that every person with ADHD looks different. And so my ADHD compared to a friend's ADHD is so different. One of my very close friends and I always talk about how our symptoms are so different, but they're both significant and disruptive, but so different. Meaning I will literally be paralyzed and not get up because I don't know where to start, where my friend will not stop doing things and, you know, things like that. And so, but also because many adults have not been diagnosed until they're adults, they've gone through their whole life really having some of these issues, but compensating. And usually it's the folks who are slightly, you know, higher functioning, higher, maybe a higher intelligence, maybe they're their symptoms in general are not as, are more mild to moderate than severe. And so they have been able to mask them. And women especially have been able to mask a lot of them, especially just due to that idea of, of wanting, you know, of, of wanting to feel like they're organized. A lot of women's identity is based on that perception of having the household together, having their kids together, and just that idea of making everything look okay. And so that's another thing. And I think females are just recently being diagnosed even in young children, adolescents, and especially in adults. In the past, even during, since 2020, there's been a huge rise in adult female diagnoses. And then the last thing I would say is that ties in, I'll kind of lump it together, is that we're not taught this in medical school. I think I had probably one small not lecture, one like small segment on during my child rotation in medical school and or during residency, I think I learned a little bit about ADHD pertaining to children and adolescents, but not much at all. And so really these provide, you know, graduating, going into psychiatry, you're even primary care physicians, pediatricians, no one get they don't get the training. Um, and even if they do, the training is outdated. And then tying that tying Onto that is that the first line of treatment for everyone, including six-year-olds, 20-year-old, a 75-year-old, is a controlled substance. So the first line treatment, the most effective treatment is controlled substances, which scares many, scares the patient, the family member, as well as the prescriber, the physician. That is incredible how we don't get to learn a lot of the things we should learn in a way, not just in school, but in life itself. It's, uh, it doesn't come with that manual. So that's mm -hmm. why I love the idea that we can become more curious about anything that's presented to us and kind of tend to go deeper. And I've seen that a lot more talking to so many professionals here. And I see psychologists and medical doctors, you know, and how curious they become when they are not able to treat certain diseases, disorders, and then they just go on their own kind of searching, finding yes. now their own way to find a solution to help them. It's just beautiful to see that. Yes. I sometimes go down. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I love when I'm on the search to figure out a patient's like medical, yeah. you know, why <laughs> they're having some belly pain. I'm like, stay mm. in my lane. I got to tell myself <laughs> to stay in my lane a yeah. lot. <laughs> yes. I love that. It's, uh, I mean, to me, it's just, um, yeah, it's beauty itself showing up. <laughs> yes. um, another question I have. So usually. Why do they come to you, some of these patients with uh, that are being affected by ADHD? I know they don't know yet. They don't have diagnosis, but why do they look for help? What is the reason? Yeah, so usually a couple different things. One is that maybe their life just got a little bit more complicated and they finally realized that something is not, or their life got a little more complicated. They had their first kid, they got married, they moved, they started a grad school program, and they're no longer to use 
the coping skills and strategies that they use their whole life to help with focus. They don't have the 20 hours a week to prepare the way they did before and maybe college. They now have a small child. And so usually they'll present feeling overwhelmed, but usually, and usually it's not that they come in saying, I can't focus sometimes, but usually it's I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, or I'm depressed. And so usually that's a lot of the times the symptom that presents and why a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of times the underlying ADHD is not always teased out. Wow. Um, so there are different reasons, but that yeah. makes sense. The this being the measurement when they are not able to cope with life's, let's say, small challenges even, or life become complicated, as you said. Exactly. And then the other reasons. So then there are people who come in, they knew they had a diagnosis when they were younger, they went on meds and they felt like a zombie. And I always say that just meant that they were over-medicated at that point. That if you feel like a zombie, that means that the medication is working on the impulsive hyperactive symptoms too much. And that's what kids usually have the most of. If you feel like you had 10 cups of coffee, that's called Starbucks syndrome. And that's when the, yeah. the same medication, the same Adderall or Ritalin is working differently in the brain. And basically what it's doing, it's working on the inattentive symptoms. It's helping you focus, sustain attention. And so, you know, those people come in knowing that maybe they're just, they're not getting along with their spouse. They're not paying attention. Their their spouse feels like they're being, um, you know, selfish and not listening or really just in their head or can't engage with their friends. And so they come in feeling like they need therapy or they're on the verge of a divorce or want to leave their job. And so things like that pop up. A lot of emotional dysregulation, even if it's internal, sometimes maybe they come in and, you know, I have couples who basically the wife drags the husband in because of anger management issues. Um, and then I figure out, you know, that there is some, maybe some mild substance use, but all along it's been this underlying, you know, untreated ADHD, but they've been super successful, but they've also had to use different strategies and some less healthy than others. But not not saying that there there also is possibly, in addition to the ADHD substance use, in mm -hmm. addition to the ADHD anxiety and yeah. and depression. But if we don't treat that underlying disorder, which, not, which started first, meaning mm -hmm. it started, yeah. you know, you don't, you're not born with anxiety. You're not born mm -hmm. with depression. You're born with ADHD. It's just the uh -huh. symptoms don't manifest until some point, sometimes at five, sometimes at three, sometimes at 20, sometimes at 40, sometimes not until menopause. Wow. Menopause, yes. yes, <laughs> that's, yes a, exactly. that's another topic. Yes, yes. Wow, that relates to me. I'm 46 and I'm having yes. some of the symptoms that I never had before. Oh, God, I'm not looking forward. Oh, yeah, <laughs> good for you. I'm um, almost there. <laughs> yeah, wow. And then I feel this, um, uh, I would say two weeks before the menstruation comes and then the attention and I become a lot more irritated in a way, like I, with my husband and I'm I say things, I tend to be very kind because my practices that are, they are founded in spirituality. So it's meditation, you know, that I'm very, this is my principle, guiding principle. Even if I have to say the truth that it's really harsh, it has to be in a kind way. So I keep that principle. I never lose touch with it, but it's that I'm a lot more straightforward. I don't hold back in, in those during those times, I know the body's going through something, the hormonal chains. So and then I have to ask the question because it caught my attention on your website, one of your blog posts. It's the, the hormonal link between premenstrual dysphoric disorder and ADHD. So I'm wondering if this is something that is um, it's happening to me and how would I know? So, yeah, so there unfortunately is not enough research out there to have all the answers. But what we do know is that the neurochemicals, neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin are closely related and affected by the sex hormones, which are estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And so when someone has ADHD, 
when we look at the, when we break it down, it really biologically means that their brain has less dopamine activity. Mm. And so, you know, that dopamine is needed for alertness. It's needed for impulse control. It's needed for planning, organization. Mm. It's needed for a lot of things, but it has less. And then the serotonin is less in people with anxiety or depression. And so when we put those aside, then we have the sex hormones. Everyone has different distributions of sex hormones. Even females have testosterone. Um, So during a woman's cycle, well, once they menstruate for the first time, menarche, they will start to have fluctuations in these hormones. It's actually not the amount of the hormone that causes the issues. It's the sensitivity to the fluctuations. Mm, So, you know, when people say, well, why don't I just test my hormone? Well, that's not going to tell us much (laughs) unless we're really, unless there's specific things that the OB-GYN is looking for. But what we can say is that we can really watch the patterns. And so premenstrual, so what happens is the, the relationship exists. It's very simple. When estrogen is high, it actually increases the dopamine and serotonin. So when you are, when your estrogen is high, which is the first two weeks of your cycle, and I'll go back to that in a moment, you actually have better alertness, cognition, and you actually will feel less anxious and you'll feel less irritable. And then as the first day of you, so that's the first two weeks, and we consider the first day of the cycle, your first day of your period. So let's just say the first day of your period and then two weeks after, if you have a typical, like if you have a perfect 30 day cycle, which is rare, but still we'll go with that. Then on day 14 is when the estrogen starts to decrease in relation to the progesterone. And at that point, that's when higher progesterone actually has an inverse relationship, an opposite relationship with the level of dopamine and serotonin. And so that's when you will notice that even though you're taking ADHD medication, you feel like it's not working. You took mm-hmm. your Adderall on day 17 and you can't focus. Your, mm-hmm. your brain feels foggy or your Prozac that you've been on forever doesn't work. Though You feel more irritable. You feel more like just a lot of like not just physical PMS, but, you know, that mental. So that being said every different part of a woman's life, it can change. So not menopause that really causes the issue. It's the perimenopause. Uh So during perimenopause, which is anywhere from 30, you know, mid 30, all the way up to, you know, 60, Uh whenever it is, it can last a couple months. It can last a couple of years. It's that, that continuous change Mm -hmm. and that decrease in estrogen continuously in relation to, to progesterone that really causes the symptoms of perimenopause, which is basically the decrease in estrogen. So the cognition feels foggy. This is the first time that maybe it gets to the level where they're like, what's going on? Am I having dementia? Or (laughs) am I finally realizing I had ADHD my whole life and it's Mm -hmm. finally at that threshold? Wow. Ah, that's a lot of information (laughs) to digest. One of the things that you said that caught my attention immediately, it, it might be resonating perhaps with me, is the sensitivity to hormonal change. I mean, it is happening, but it's, it depends how sensitive you are. That goes with for trauma too, because some, something really bad could happen to somebody and affect them for life. And the same thing could happen to somebody else and not really affect them much. So it depends really in our own chemistry, the way the body yes. works. Definitely. Good analogy. Yeah, in my case, I eat very healthy. I'm very healthy oriented in the sense of working out, I'm in good shape and everything. But yes, like when you talked about people who take medications and then they, they're feeling like it's not working, the medications even not working. In my case, almost like my everything that I do health-wise feels like it's not working. All my supplements, the workouts, meditation, nothing's working. I feel like, why, why is this happening? Why am I... Uh, responding this way to whatever it is. Yeah. So is this uh, the question I always like to ask and I'll ask you is how long has this been going on? Have you noticed 
a pattern throughout your life? Is it always been cyclical? Has it gotten worse, this pattern? Did you notice it since you first had a menstrual cycle? Were you, sometimes people don't always know because they've been on a birth control, which the goal of birth control or an IUD is to suppress ovulation and suppress the, the fluctuation of hormones. Although it's not perfect, they don't all do that. They do it somewhat. So you're not having the fluctuations as much. So it's not as obvious maybe for uh, 20 years or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, never taken birth control. So I don't know what that feels like and how that okay. would affect my body. But I noticed clearly the last, I would say, five years, seven years. I'm 46 now. So it started around 40. That I can tell. Yeah. So that has to do with what you said, perimenopause. Yes. Do we know when you're, are you, um, your mother, is that your biological mother? Yes, I asked her uh, when, when, yeah, yeah, when the whole, when the, uh, what do you call it, the um, menopause, like when, right? Yeah, menopause, when she started. She said it was at 47. Okay. So that means coming up for me in a yeah, way. Yeah, so my mom was around like maybe even earlier, meaning that's on the earlier end, both of us. So, and I'm, what am I, 43, God, I forgot, I just had a birthday. So yeah, so that makes sense. So you obviously, you, hopefully this is kind of on the, I don't know, almost oh, at the end of oh, it. Oh, good. Like, <laughs> yeah, I hope say, so. Because <laughs> it doesn't sound like you've had a long life history of these symptoms. And the, no. the good news is that it, it would be harder to de- detect that if you had been on some sort of birth control, but you weren't. So you never were that sensitive to a regular menstrual cycle before. So it does make me think that that decrease, you were very sensitive to the decrease in estrogen relative your, to your other sex hormones the testosterone and progesterone. So that's when I really am, you know, thinking about ways, as long as, you know, there's no significant family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, thinking of some natural ways to increase that estrogen, but not necessarily just natural. Right, right. Yeah. Because I'm always, I resist to medications or anything that has to do with something that's not natural. So that will be interesting. I really appreciate you um, kind of giving this information. It feels like a consultation in a way. Yeah. I love uh, it. Wow. It's amazing how the human body functions. Uh, there's something else I was about to mention that I forgot, but I want to go back to the, the causes. So you did mention before that the causes of ADHD, it's actually, we are born with it. It's not something that happens after we are born. We're born with a different brain chemistry. Right. So it's like developmental. We're born with the chemistry. So the brain chemistry is different. And then the actual development does happen after birth, but the predisposition is there. And that's why the hereditary component is so high. So if you have one father or mother who has it, I mean, it's up to 60 to 70%, 50 to 70% chance that a child will have an ADHD presentation. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow, it's so interesting. The more I hear these things, because I'm very much in contact with a lot of information in the sense of listening, reading. So I kind of hesitate to kind of start diagnosing everybody around me, my parents, oh, I everybody. I do it all day. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know, well, we have a license to do it. But <laughs> people like myself shouldn't be doing that. So uh, I really appreciate your presence here today, There, It's really wonderful. It feels that way. So thank you so much for being you in, in this reality. Thank you. And doing thank what you. you do. We are almost at the end. I do have a few more questions for you. Sure. One that came to mind as well was about medication or therapy. Is that clear for you now? What cases require medication and what cases only therapy? And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I would say that most 98 of folks really would benefit from medication Um, and benefit from medication. I primarily see adults and older adolescents really stimulant medication Um, unless there's some true contraindication, meaning that they can't be on it. And there's very few of those or there's some strong preference. Otherwise, I think that, you know, 97% of my patients that would benefit I will say that maybe there are people who have been diagnosed much later in life or even like 30, 40, 50, and have used skills and strategies so well for most of their life. And then maybe they have a bump in the road or just 
a divorce and that's when they need the medication. But then after things resolve and they're remarried, they're able to go back to just using their strategies. But I do think the opposite, the medication cannot do everything. And, you know, the old saying, pills don't build skills. And Mm. so that really is true. And so, you know, all the Adderall that I give someone, Ritalin I give someone, will not help someone decide to prioritize doing their taxes over cleaning out their closet. Right. I can have I can have them sustain attention, but I can't have them. I can't mm. make that choice just with the medication. That is so true. Yes. It's interesting that you say that because I interviewed somebody recently. I think he's a psychologist, psychiatrist, too. Yes. He oh. said, he's writing a book that um, the title is Medication or Meditation. Oh, I like that. Because <laughs> he does both. He kind of uh, prescribed meditation as well for a lot of cases. So and he's writing a whole book about it. I love that. Yeah, yeah, because when I think about neurodiversity and nature itself, and we are nature, that it's very important to kind of uh, acknowledge the differences, that we are not all made the same, and becoming aware it's the best way to really, to gain, to empower ourselves, to gain more control, right, over some disorders like this, predispositions like this one, for example, ADHD. And like the knowledge, I think like anything in life, if you have knowledge, like if I disagree with a friend or a colleague or someone or, and I learn about their position, that's the closest I'm going to get to the possibility of maybe changing their mind. If I really take the time to understand and I have strong opinions and they do, in order to even have any chance of making an impact on their belief, I have to come to it in terms of with real genuine curiosity. Yeah. Ah, that's golden to me. Yes. Yes. Yes, Right. Genuine. Uh, Yes. So before we say goodbye for today, I do have a few more questions for you. Love to mention to your services. Saw this on your website. It says ADHD clinical evaluation. That's one. Then ADHD medication management, ADHD focused therapy. So these are some of your services. Do you also meet your clients online and offline or only in your office? Right now, it's just been online. I did for years meet prior to the pandemic. Um, most of my patients have really have really liked this virtual connection. It's just been much easier to, to keep the appointments. So for now, it's continuing like that, but we'll see. Things may change. That's good to know. And before I ask you these ending questions, is there anything that you left unsaid for today's conversation? Anything you'd like to add? I just think that, you know, I, I'm really hoping that everyone who needs to get an accurate diagnosis is able to obtain that. And I think that even, you know, if you are told that you don't have the issue and you really feel differently to make sure you advocate for yourself and really get a second opinion, I'm hopeful that in the next 15 to 20 years that, you know, more prescribers, whether it's psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, pediatricians, family practitioners, will really have the education and the information to feel comfortable and confident to make more diagnoses. Yeah, it goes back to that genuine curiosity and, of course, connected to knowledge, education. So... My ending question, I have a technical one, but before that, this is a question that I usually end the conversations and I ask everyone, usually. Three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die. Hmm. That's a good one. Three experiences. Um, well, so I would say, you know, true love and like, true love. And then to tie onto that, just true, like acceptance Mm -hmm. of, you know, from someone else, from your loved ones and yourself, more importantly, I would say a real, like possible, some like life changing moment doesn't have to be traumatic, but that really changes the way that you perceive things and changes maybe your direction or your ability to relate or to connect. Mm, yes. Uh, I hear wisdom there. <laughs> Love, mm-hmm. acceptance, and um, transformation. <laughs> yes. Yes. And thank you so much, Sarah, for your beautiful presence. Thank you for having me. Ah, yes. 
Uh, thank you. I love doing this. I call my sacred space being oh. here. And that is part of the connection piece in life that feels very close to the heart. But thank you so much for what you do, this beautiful desire to help others and curiosity, being genuine about that so you can learn more about yourself and from there help others, which you are doing that already. Thank you again. And before we say goodbye for today, where is the best place to find more information about you and what you do? I would say on my website, drdarapsychiatry.com. And then you can always reach out at Dr. Dara at psychiatry at drdarapsychiatry.com. And, you know, if you're in the Pennsylvania area, you can definitely message me for an evaluation. Otherwise, you know, there are great websites to go on to find someone who can evaluate you. Chad is one of them. There is something called Absard, which is the organization of, you know, prescribers who focus on adult ADHD. And then there's really just many different ways to find the help you need. So, you know, don't give up if you are mm. frustrated and can't find it. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Dara Abraham and her work, please visit drdarapsychiatry.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.